today is about what information vets are taught. What is there, are there problems with that information? And specifically, is there an issue of bias? Is there an issue that the information is all telling a biased story because it's coming from a similar source? And you could probably guess the answer, unfortunately, is yes, in my estimation. With what the veterinary community is taught about nutritional science topics is that all the information they're taught from the time they enroll in veterinary school to the time they finish their third decade of clinical practice as your neighborhood vet, the vast majority of the information that they're taught is created by, funded by, comes directly from, in ways we're going to catalog on this show, one of a very small cluster of major pet food companies. Well, welcome back to another episode. And we are going to continue on our amazing series. I was I learned so much on the first episode of what we're calling but more vet smoke camels. And yeah. we are on episode two. And I would like to kind of throw it over to Dan because he does such a good job of summarizing the purpose of the series, what we talked about in episode one. Well, we will talk about episode two. We really we're focusing on the facts, which is what every episode does. But I think it's really good to kind of there's a lot of evidence. And I felt a little bit like CSI, <laughs> like you would send me over some documents and we would go through them together. So this is going to be a really good series in terms of just opening up the doors to a subject that not a lot of people understand or are privy to or just really understand in general. So yeah, it's like there's there's so we have the word facts in the title of our podcast, feed your dog facts. And the 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 concepts of facts and evidence have like two completely different usages that are both really relevant to the material that we cover on this show. So one is what does the science show about important companion animal nutrition topics? What that's what we consider the evidence or the facts when it comes to knowledge about substantive specific issues like we've covered on past shows. How much uh, protein should my dog eat each day? Well, in order to answer that question, we go to the scientific record and we look at the peer reviewed studies because those serve as evidence supporting or refuting, uh, you know, the, right. the specific topic we're pushing out there. Now, on the other hand, in a non-scientific domain, facts and evidence are demonstrated in a completely different kind of way. So think of like a trial. We're trying to determine, did Jen defraud dozens of, um, of people in, in the state of uh, Illinois in 2018? Mm -hmm. Is that a true statement or not? Well, it's going to depend on what the evidence shows about that, right? That's what the court is going to get to the to use to make its decision. And so in that case, we're looking at documentary evidence. Is there in writing something that shows the fact that we're trying to prove? We're going to look at testimonial evidence. What do people that have personal knowledge about this issue, you or the dozens of people that you have allegedly defrauded, have to say about the subject. And then there's like uh, other forms, physical evidence, you know, we think of CSI and DNA and fingerprint analysis, stuff like that. So this show is focused on that category of facts and evidence. We're going to be talking about, like you said, um, an issue that's relevant to understanding what your veterinarian knows about nutritional science topics. And like you said, this is a companion piece to an episode that we've already put out there. So the, our first More Vets Smoke Camels show was highlighting basically what, uh, like how much information your veterinarian is taught about nutritional science topics. And you can go to the show from our website, from the, the, the show page on any one of your, like whatever your favorite podcast platform is, and you can listen. But basically the take home message is they're not taught very much with some really, really small exceptions. The amount that they're taught is shockingly little. I have a few 
things I intend to use as a visual aid today. But I mean, like one I'll highlight right here is like, this is the, if you're watching the video, you can see the thickness of this pamphlet that was used in one of the top vet schools in the country when I was writing my book. Oh God, I'm knocking my video all over the place. And it's like, you know, by, technical difficulties. Said, yeah, I mean, it's like a flimsy, looks like it, just like a handout for a museum tour or something. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the top three vet schools in the country and the right. only printed materials that, that students are required to look at. So yeah. so anyway, that's you can learn all about that subject if you go to the, the first episode, mm -hmm. our first Feed Your Dog Facts, more Vet Smoke Camels episode. Second one today is about what information vets are taught. What is there, are there problems with that information? And specifically, is there an issue of bias? Is there an issue that the information is all telling a biased story because it's coming from a similar source? And you could probably guess the answer, unfortunately, is yes. That a, a second major problem in my estimation with what the veterinary community is taught about nutritional science topics is that all the information they're taught from the time they enroll in veterinary school to the time they finish their third decade of clinical practice as your neighborhood vet, the vast majority of the information that they're taught is created by, funded by, comes directly from, in ways we're going to catalog on this show, one of a very small cluster of major pet food companies. Um, and that's sort of the take home message that I think we're going to be able to show and demonstrate to you guys as we talk through through all the supporting facts. But kind of before we go into it, I wanted to go into the McDonald's thing that I was talking to you about. Like basically there's a my experience of, a, of being a pet owner and being a consumer of veterinary services is like. I already have sort of, even before writing a book that's like really focused on this stuff, had like internalized the idea that, yeah, of course, my vet gets their information from Royal Canaan right, and Hills. Exactly. Like every time you walk into a veterinary office, you're going to see those logos like quickly, either in flyers and posters that are on on the walls. You're, they're, in all likelihood, they're going to be selling products that are made by one of those two brands again hills and royal canaan but like it think of your own veterinary experience and just think of like how much you may have internalized the presence of those brand like as being a part of the environment the veterinary environment that you go into and what i think of as the mcdonald's analogy is designed to kind of challenge how normalized that type of thinking has become like think of how much outrage you would feel if you went into your doctor's office, not your dog's doctor, but your doctor's office, and when you're there talking about your backache or your insomnia or whatever, the doctor turns around and there's a whole list of different pamphlets created by McDonald's or Coca-Cola or PepsiCo or any one of the other huge corporate food brands in the United States. Like you would feel, if you're anything like me, you'd feel shocked by it. Like you would never tolerate like your your doctor being like, oh, here's the McDonald's advice on what your three balanced meals a day should look like. You, it would, you'd be completely outraged. Mm -hmm. That's exactly, not exactly, by analogy, that is the situation that you experience in every veterinary office in the country. These companies, Hills Pet Nutrition, Royal Canin, which is a brand produced by Mars Pet Care, are the, you know, by analogy, the equivalent of McDonald's or Coca-Cola. They're the largest, mo like highest income corporate pet food producers in the world, among them in the top five. And there's, they've got a, not just like a seat at, at the table when your vet is being taught about veterinary nutritional topics. They are the only real voice. They're the only place. Everything your vet is taught comes through them in one way or another. And we'll go into the specifics as we go on. It's such a change of perspective because I never really thought about that or doubted it or questioned it or even really noticed it. Right. I go to my vet. I When my dog was on a prescription diet, I had to go to my vet to get this food. My vet would say, okay, here's some changes. Here's a, exactly a pamphlet from this company. You can buy the food here. 
And just think about that. You going to your medical doctor and him being like, you need to hydrate more, stop and get a few cans of Coke on the way out. Right. You're right. like, what? It just, the, the, the disparity between industries is just mind boggling because we've accepted it for so long because that's all we've been exposed to where it's a very common practice among these veterinary clinics. And it kind of gets worse, the more like corporate or chain um, the vet yeah. clinic is, yeah, and right. we'll get into all of that. But yes, it's, it's such a good call out. I'm so glad you're starting off with the McDonald's hey. analogy. Now that everybody's Chapter hungry. one, <laughs> McDonald's analogy. Um, and it's just, we've taken it for granted for too long. Yeah. And it's like, there are just a couple of things that help to show like why you do see, despite this being an analogy that holds water in my view, you don't want, well, so how come I don't see, why isn't McDonald's trying to do right. that to my doctor? And there are a couple of things that stand out to me. One is that there are a great, there are only 32 veterinary schools in the United States and the number of rising, like there's, I think there are about a hundred thousand practicing vets in the U S at any given moment. The number of vets, like that's not a big number when you compare it against the scale of these that these companies have achieved, where they're doing billions of dollars of business a year. If you were so inclined to say, like, look, I want to get one message in front of every veterinary student in the country. Somebody draw me up a plan for how we're going to do that. You got to get into 32 schools. It's not not all that difficult. It's much harder to get into every medical school. There are a great mm -hmm. deal more medical schools in the country is is kind of one thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that the sources of funding available for veterinary research and veterinary like knowledge dissemination are just way smaller than the number than the kind and scale of the resources that are available for human scientific human focused scientific research, medical research. Institutions like the National Institute of Health that provide tons of funding for you know human focused medical research don't exist in the veterinary world. Um, we've, as a matter of public policy, we've chosen not to create those kinds of things in the U.S. and they just don't really exist. And so, if you want to do like the money has to come from somewhere. You want to make a vet school. You want to teach veterinarians about the things they need to know. If the money's got to come from somewhere, and there's not very very little of it is coming from public sources. And so the guys who occupy the big seat at the table are the for-profit entities. That's they play like out of all the dollars that are available to teach vets, it's just a bigger fraction of that comes from industry, the available ones, the available dollars in the veterinary world than in the human medical world. And so like McDonald's even as big as they are, can't meaningfully compete with the National Institutes of Health. Hills is the biggest player when it comes to the veterinary side of it. Just there's just no equivalently large entity. So those two things are why you don't see the same. There's not a French fries or the best uh, pamphlet in your doctor's <laughs> office. You know, French fries are a part of a healthy, balanced diet. <laughs> I mean, it it's is. we call the show more vets smoke camels and we, because there was a time and it wasn't that long ago where there was a non-sarcastic ad campaign called More Doctors Smoke Camels, okay? The idea that a whole community of very intelligent, very scientifically focused people can be misled into recommending something that is as deadly as smoking cigarettes is not a theoretical outlandish idea, okay? That happened in the United States while your grandparents were alive mm -hmm. okay so like let's not let's not kid ourselves by being like oh how ridiculous if the doctor was saying a french fries are a part of a healthy diet it's like i mean that's i could think of much more ridiculous situations that we're being asked to swallow every day so yeah i mean it exactly it was the 1950s it wasn't the 1810s right. <laughs> so yeah it it and you know you always blow me away of of understanding the connections and discussing all the connections but i have to remember that you spent literally years going down the rabbit hole of all this yeah. information 
Yeah. And it's all evidenced in your book. <laughs> if you want the, we're going to do a great deal like, here's where this comes from. Here's yeah. where this assertion comes from today. But if you want the really deep dive version, you can get a free copy of the book. It's in the show notes. We'll give you an e-copy. We can't, I'm not going to print a copy and send it to you because I can't make, that's going to lose. I just can't afford to do that. But you can download a free copy, um, show notes, go there yeah. and that you can see there's, you know, the, the references section is a hundred pages long. So there's a lot yeah, of, I mean, reading. Hey, we're all nerds at heart on the podcast. So we'll make sure you have page numbers. We'll make sure you understand what chapter to look for, because if you are truly invested in this subject, it is fascinating and we cannot cover everything we want to cover in the 45 minutes to an hour that we normally record a podcast right. episode. So anyway, so yeah, so let's kind of talk about the, all these industries and companies and really their presence of all the, their presence with all these vet schools. Like you yep. said, there's only 32 in the country. So it's not, I that think hard. that's the right number. It depends exactly how you classify. It's like there yeah, there's an accreditation body. And I think there's like a Caribbean uh, school that's like falls either on one side or the other side, but it's, it's basic. It's 32 or 29 or so. It's like, depends who we're not talking hundreds is not the talking hundreds. capacity no, here. No, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, a story you can't do this topic without telling is the story of how this started becoming a thing in the first place. This is told in my book. It's been somewhat widely reported, but I never, it never like ceases to surprise people when I tell them that this whole idea that your veterinarian is going to be influenced heavily by pet food companies comes from toothpaste, basically. Um, there, there was a point in the 1980s where Hills Pet Nutrition was a middling one of a few pet food brands trying to find its own uh, identity and its own niche and its own kind of like engine for, for growth. And um, it was around the time that the company got acquired. Hills Pet Nutrition has been around since before the turn of the 20th century. So finally, in the 1980s, it got acquired by a major, a lar even larger company, a big conglomerate of, of consumer products called Colgate Palmolive. And Colgate Palmolive is more well known for making toothpaste products. And they're particularly well known for a marketing campaign that they've enjoyed tremendous success with right before they acquired Hills which is they, they came, somebody at, at, at Colgate Palmolive came to the realization that like, look, instead of trying to directly persuade individual teeth brushers that we've got the best toothpaste for them, we're gonna just operate on the assumption that people don't even listen to what the, the commercial says about what the best toothpaste is. What they do is they go to their dentist. And if their dentist says to them, this is the right toothpaste for you, then that's the toothpaste they're going to lean on. And so Colgate Palmolive said, we're not going to even worry about trying to make commercials. We're just going to persuade the dentist. If we can persuade the dentist that we make the right toothpaste, then it's going to work in our favor because the dentists are going to influence the individual people with teeth. And that's what they did. And they were colossally successful doing it. They increased the like scale of the company by like 10x over a short period of time. And it was in that was basically in the lead up, the diligence phase to when they that when Colgate Palmolive acquired Hills Pet Nutrition. And their idea was we're going to do it the exact same way. We had this great success with dentists. We're going to do the same thing with veterinarians. We have a small community. We don't have to worry about convincing um, individual pet owners that there's something special about Hills products. If we can just convince their veterinarians, we're going to if we can do that successfully, then it'll work well for the company. And lo and behold, it worked phenomenally well for the company. The reason that Hills is still a household name today is because that was a very successful process, basically. Um, you can read, there's a wonderful journalist whose name is Tara Parker Pope, who I think has just moved on from New York Times, but used to work for New York Times. She's written about this, the, the like, what executives are involved, how they made this decision. It's pretty fascinating. There's, it's covered extensively in my book if you want some more of it. But that's basically how it came into being and it worked. And so they just leaned on it. And today that's the cornerstone of what Hills does. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like there's no, they make a whole line of prescription only products and you can't get those products. You can't just go buy them. Your vet has to tell you that yeah. they think that's the right product for your, and that, that really underscores like 
without this whole that, that's not a small part of their product line that's their hills prescription diet line that's like a big part of that company and you literally can't even just go to the store and buy it you got to have your veterinarian recommend it so it's like they're clearly successful in influencing what veterinarians believe about the health of their products all start from toothpaste all start <laughs> like with toothpaste <laughs> such a great story and it's still right and to be clear, the strategy is still ongoing. It's not a, it wasn't a flash in the pan marketing campaign. Right. It, the strat, it was a strategic focus for them of like, we want vets to recommend our food. We want vets to sell the food. It was very much deliberate and it still is ongoing. So it's not something that stopped a few years ago. This is very much till today. What you've seen uh, more recently is other brands trying to get in on the action, yeah. so to speak. It's hard to push out um, like an established interest. So at the time that I wrote my book and that was published in 2016, more than half of the vet schools in the country had a named professorship from Hills. There was the Hills Pet Nutrition Chair of blah, blah, blah nutrition at more than half of the schools in the country. That is by far from the only way that funding is provided from corporate interests to vet schools directly but that's kind of like the top of the pile if you're doing that that's like the best you can imagine it's like uh if an individual philanthropist provides money to a university they get a building named after them it's the equivalent of that right. the visit the the leading chair the leading professor in the nutrition department of the school is the hills pet nutrition emeritus huh. professor of nutrition or whatever and more than half the schools in the country and so they've locked it down in the u.s so successfully that like the the smaller but still like reasonably well-funded firms that are trying to get in on that strategy have had to go basically to canada like a woman that i know reasonably well is a leading nutritional science veterinary nutritional science researcher at this canadian university called the university of guelph and just over the past, I think, two years, her title got changed to incorporate there that she's the champion pet foods, blah, 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 nutrition professor of such and such at the University of Guelph. Champion Pet Foods is the brand that makes the or, or the company that makes origin brand foods, Akana brand foods. Okay. So they've tried to like they basically co-opted this same hmm. strategy, but you can't even do it at the big U.S. vet schools like Davis or Tufts or whatever, because they're just like fully locked down already by the by Hills. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's like a fact that that always kind of blows people's minds. But it's like they get in much earlier. So like the first exposure, if you are somebody that is one day going to be in a position of recommending nutritional things to a pet owner with authority, you start out by going to vet school. That's kind of like you, you go to college and then you've made your first call for someday I'm going to be a professional recommender of pet food products. You're going to vet school. That's how that right. all starts, right? And that's the level at that's like the first stage of when brands start to kind of get their hooks into veterinarians. And I recount several different firsthand experiences in the book. But basically what it looks like is there are student reps for these companies. And so when I went to law school, we had the same equivalent type of thing around um, companies that provide like test prep services. So if you want to take, if you want to be a lawyer, you got to pass the bar and it costs in order to prep for that test. It's like a course that costs $10,000. Oh. And in order to sell, I know exactly. In order <laughs> to sell those course, those prep courses to, yeah. to law students, basically the companies would go on campus, recruit individual students to serve as on campus reps. And the exact same thing takes place with regard to pet food products and on veterinary campuses. And what they basically yeah. provide is they, they train up these representatives to explain why their products are so special and tell other students that they get a big discount, either free or big discounted food products if they get them all, if they sign up for the Hills mailing list and decide to purchase all their food from Hills. So you're a, you're a student. Mm. Okay, you're not making the big bucks at that point in your life. And you're a, an animal lover because you're there in veterinary school, you've got a pet in all likelihood, it's a big incentive, big incentive to sign up and be on the hills train because hills is saying, look, we'll give you free food, you just got to be willing to sit through our lectures and those kind of things. So it starts the very earliest stage through on campus reps. 
and then through the professorships. Like I said, more than half the schools in the countries have a named professorship from Hills Pet Nutrition. So it's a huge, significant amount. Wow. I had but, no idea. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had well, no idea about the professorship. Wow. <laughs> so, but, but that's only like, that's just an indication that the school has received right. money from them. That's not, that's not, doesn't, that's suggestive of bias maybe, but it's not, it's, it's not as far as the proof goes. If you want to right. see the actual bias, you can see it much closer to home. So you're a student, you're a veterinary student, you're at your school, you've been pitched on the get your free Hills pet products from our on-campus rep. You've noticed that the highest ranking nutrition professor at your school is named after Hills Pet Nutrition. Their title is named after Hills Pet Nutrition. Okay, that's one thing. Well, when you sit down and you go to your nutrition class, if you're gonna do the one that you've got to be, you're required to take at one of the best vet schools in the country, this thing that I'm holding up here is your so quote unquote textbook, this like 70 page pamphlet. If you want to do one of the big boy classes, you get a real textbook. And here's an example of that. This is the fourth edition of what's like basically the leading text that's right. used in veterinary nutrition programs. So there's only 32 schools. We're not talking about um, dozens and dozens of different textbooks available. You've got fewer than you can count on one hand, basically. And so this is kind of like the garden variety. This is the most like, well, as I think this is basically the most widely used. I don't have that fact exactly. This is a very widely used textbook. And um, as you can see, it's a hugely significant thing that goes into all kinds of detail about important topics. But you'll also notice on the back of the book is a Hills Pet Nutrition logo. And the reason, and it says compliments of Hills. And the reason that that is what you'll find on the back logo is because of the four editors who put, oh, here's another, <laughs> the, the, there are, Folks, again, I'm like holding up this book to the camera so that folks can see what I'm describing. But there are four people who this book was dedicated to. And they are all four members of one family, the Morris family. And the Morris family is the family that founded Hills Pet Nutrition. Mark Morris Sr. is the guy who founded Hills Pet Nutrition. Morris equals Hills, basically. That's that's like kind of the take-home thing to recognize. To, to, to recall, but um, like more than that, I've got, this is a book that has four editors, okay? Like basically the way textbooks are, are created is you have a small cluster of folks who serve as editors who compile research from individual authors, put them all together into one book. In this case, you've got four and they're listed here. And let's see, one, this, the, the like named literally the top guy is a full-time employee of Hills Pet Nutrition, vice president of research at Hills. Uh, this, this here, veterinary fellow at Hills. And um, I think those are the two that are literally full-time employees of Hills Pet Nutrition at the time this book is created. So again, let's, you know, this is like where I'll remind everybody about the McDonald's analogy. Like think about what this would look like in the human medical world. If like your doctor went off to medical school and had to take very sensibly a nutri human nutrition course. And what that, and it was a, when he got his textbook, it was a big red book with a golden arches on the front written by two, a vice president of McDonald's and a guy from Coca-Cola. Like it's just, it, obviously right. like the students wouldn't even stand for it. It's so ridiculous, but mm -hmm. it's the, that is the state of affairs. And it's not, I'm not cherry picking one book. Here's another canine feline nutrition, not as serious a textbook, but the same idea. We're talking yeah. about small animal. That's like companion animal or small animal are the terms that are those most often used to describe dogs and cats in the veterinary world canine feline nutrition and in this case again we've got four editors 
case, Aristotle, Hayek, and Rosh. And in this case, we've got three out of four from Procter and Gamble Pet Care. Procter and Gamble has since like divested their interest in pet care products, but they're everybody's familiar with those like the right. Procter and Gamble name because at the time they owned brands like Imes and Yukonuba. So like these are you know currently that like basically played the um, uh, musical chairs game where like brands have shifted around from like one big Colgate Palmolive to Procter and Gamble to Mars and these big huge corporate conglomerates that own all kinds of human use food brands and pet care food brands. But the point is the same. This is a second of like three veterinary nutrition textbooks. Three out of four of the editors are the equivalent of a McDonald's vice president. Right. And I can't imagine all 32 vet schools are using different textbooks. I'm sure there is a stockpile of, okay, here's like the top three pet nutrition. Like you said, in most school schools don't even require a pet nutrition course. So they're going yeah. to have limits of what book in reference that they can use in these courses. So it's just astounding um for all of these pillars that they're kind of putting in these schools of again it's it's not that we're bashing that relationship it's just the inherent bias that no other industries do this it's like hey guys this is odd like why is nobody else talking about this and it's because they've been doing it for so long so well, it, it just like encourages a kind of degree of healthy skepticism i think yeah around yeah. any topic that might be bad for the bottom line of these companies, right? If you're in a world where your doctor is taught about nutrition by McDonald's, okay? And your doctor tells you that quarter pounders and fries happen to be the two best types of food products for you to eat. You're gonna view that with a degree of healthy skepticism because mm -hmm. you know that if McDonald's is behind it, they have a huge, financial disincentive to promote any research right. that says quarter pounders and fries are healthy for you. And that same reality, these are for-profit entities held by public companies, okay? Mm -hmm. These are not things where like, even if Colgate Palmolive said, we're uniquely dedicated to promoting accurate nutritional information more than the average bear, they have a legal obligation to their shareholders not to put out information that's bad for the profitability of the company. They can't do it. They're going to get sued if they put out research that says, here's the top, here's the chapter on the stuff that's uh, really relevant to the bad things about Hills products. They right. get sued. Okay. Not only is that clearly something that like, obviously no major financial, like major for-profit entity is going to do, but they are legally like they have, they're, they're not allowed to do that by law. So you've got to like, approach any body of research that they're putting out there with that understanding that reality that like a cigarette company is if a cigarette company creates your textbook they're not putting information in there that says cigarettes give you lung cancer okay that otherwise that is not a good use of their time and money yeah. exxon mogul is not putting together a climate change book that says our products cause climate change that's just not how these things go yes and it's the, so, so again, it's like, there are plenty of topics mm -hmm. that are about nutritional matters where what Hills doesn't have a dog in the fight. You know what I mean? Like there right. are plenty of places where like the amount of water a dog needs per day. Well, that's not really something that Hills cares much about. And so on that subject, maybe the issue of their being involved in creating the, the material that's being taught doesn't have a clear bias one way or the other on other issues, it's hugely central to it. And it's caught my eye, particularly around the issue of carbohydrate content, because every product, every product made by Hills Pet Nutrition and by the former, the brands that used to be owned by Procter & Gamble rely extensively on the use of dietary carbohydrate. Um, 40, 50 or more percent of the calories in that product come from dietary carbohydrate, every single one of their products. And so, in order to like, you know, the, the reality is these products are stuffed with carbs and the folks that make those products are teaching the substantive information to what you're, to your veterinarian. And so it, in my eyes, it encourages, encourages a degree of healthy skepticism around, um, 
like that specific issue in the minds of veterinarians. Yeah, I mean, as it should, I feel like that would be a normal reaction. But I think it's, you know, these vets are saying, okay, I need to take this nutrition course. And that's the only thing offered to them. I think that also is an issue. It's not like they have two textbooks or an independent textbook or something right. that was all brought. That's all that was given to them. It's all that was taught. So anyway, it's like it's, this is water, you know, that uh, uh, analogy, yeah. there's like a, a, a anecdote of the author, David Foster Wallace, giving a commencement speech at, mm -hmm. um, I forget what university it is, but he tells the anecdote of like two fish swimming along and being so um, oblivious to their surroundings because the surroundings is all they've ever known. This is water. You have to continue. If you're a fish and you want to remind yourself of like what the world you live in is, you have to keep saying this is water. This is water because yeah. all you live in your whole life is that that's what it is to be a veterinarian in the world of the big kibble era is just from day one, from the first day you walk on that campus these organizations that have a huge like incentive regarding what you're being taught are the mouthpiece. They play a huge role every step along the way. Yeah. And I should note that it's, there are, sometimes they get a little tricky too. Like these are particularly glaring examples of like the, the corporation not even really trying to hide their involvement, okay? Right. The Hills logo is on the back of the book. But there's a really important like other way that they are able to influence the veterinary community, the nutritional science research community. And that's through the operation of what are essentially like front organizations that sounds so like spy games, conspiracy <laughs> theory. -y. I don't know how else you want to like describe it, but what the general description for these types of things are nonprofit organizations that have a that have had their like reputation kind of laundered because they're removed from the real source of financing and hills pet nutrition has created one that is like the gold standard in the industry which is the morris animal foundation morris animal foundation don't you have their if you pull up their website it, even if you're not familiar like plenty of folks that are listening to this right now already have a sense an emotional reaction a positive emotional reaction, I would wager, to the notion of the Morris Animal Foundation. Like mm -hmm. it is a feel good organization. We yeah. do a lot of good things to help animals. We're a nonprofit agency designed to make animals better. Awesome. That's a thing I can get behind as a pet owner. Mm -hmm. What's less promoted is that Morris is a reference to the founder of Hills, that to this day, Hills employees and members of the Morris family continue to serve on the board of trustees and have since the organization was founded. Okay. The, uh, there's, um, what, uh, basically, like I said, like the big, the best term to use to describe the way that like this indirect influence from Hills money into the research science community, veterinary community is like laundering. Like basically it's like taking, mm -hmm. putting some steps in between the real source of the money and the recipient of the money. So that you can feel like, no, this isn't coming from Hills Pet Nutrition. This is coming from this wonderful organization, the Morris Animal Foundation. But when you scratch beneath the surface, you can see, I mean, like, I don't know, maybe some folks recognize off the top of their head that, that Mark Morris was the founder of Hills Pet Nutrition. Maybe some people have pulled their federally required um, tax forms and looked at who the members of the board of trustees are. But it's like you got it pulled up right there. You can see that several of them are members of the Morris family. Yeah. You, yeah. What you've also got to do is if you've got if the government's going to give you nonprofit status, 501c3 nonprofit status, you got to disclose in, in some ways where your money is going. And you could see through those same this this what you've got pulled up here is that form, the form 990 for the Morris Animal Foundation for a recent year. And you can see that Morris gives <laughs> extensively to veterinary schools you can see right here like quarter right of a million there. dollars yeah exactly it's like it's you got to kind of know where to look but you yeah. can see like this is another you could if your school doesn't have a hills visiting professor of nutrition and your school has created its own pamphlet instead of using the hills produced textbook you might feel like oh well see i'm one from one of the good ones hills doesn't have a direct tie to my school that's not the case. It's super easy for Hills to affect what's 
like basically the budget of a major veterinary school without giving directly to the schools. And they just launder it through the Morris Animal Foundation. You can see it right here. You got a list of like, what are essentially the biggest, most reputable veterinary schools in the country and the amount of money that they've received from Morris in any one year. Yeah, so, amount of cash grant is the title. And then purpose of grant or assistance, it says animal health studies, right? So these are direct cash grants. I'm assume, assuming every year, right? They're donating to- There's these. just a new format they're required to report every year. So this right. is information for just one year. So you're yeah. talking about millions of dollars every year. And like I said before, it's like, this is not for better or for worse. I mean, for worse. <laughs> this is not a, a corner of the world in which funding is abundant. If you want to do companion animal nutritional science research, you don't, you can't just like in the same way that a, a interest about a vaccine can go to the national interest, uh, national institutes of health. It's not like that on this side. Mm -hmm. You've got, there's not as much money available. It's a drop in the bucket of what's comparable to human medical research. And so if you want that money, you've got very few places you can go. Yeah. Morris is one of the few places you can go. And Morris, I, like I would, I would say is a essentially the non it's the equivalent of the Trump foundation for Donald Trump. Trump foundation is a nonprofit organization. Yay, good thing. Except for the fact that it's controlled by people who have a direct profit incentive. Mm -hmm. so, a very similar type thing. Yeah, um, and I think you also had a point to terms of like the Hills reps and how they're like directly tied to the board as well. So they're out in the community. And it's just, again, that it, I always think of it like the the investigation in the TV shows and the movies where it's like the red string is tied everywhere. Yeah, and that's I know. Feel with the Morris Animal Foundation, I had no idea until you showed me the website or like click these links. And I was, you know, prepping for this podcast and it's, it's right there. It's not that they are hiding anything. They're like you said, they're required to file all these taxes and documents and disclose everything. It just, yeah, it's just, it relies, it, it is much more the case that it's just become so normalized that it's mm -hmm. just such a feature of the environment. If right. you're a veterinarian that you just don't question the absurdity of it. That's right. much more the case than an effort to like tro truly cover your tracks. It's not like I've discovered for right. the first time ever that Hills is playing a role in influencing your veteran. It's like, no, 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 that's not how it goes. How it goes is it's just been so pervasive that it's just the norm. And mm -hmm. you just kind of don't have people going, wait, is this water? This is water, that type of, of thing. Yeah. So, we're, we're going to run out of time here soon, but I, we've covered, right, if you're a veterinary student, we've covered if you're a um, clinical vet and you're selling Hills products, but there's one other like domain at mm -hmm. wi it, through which veterinarians are taught about nutritional science topics. We want to cover the role that Big Kibble plays at those, and that's in what are called continuing education courses. So in order to practice veterinary medicine, Again, I know the analogy from the legal world, from having been a part of it, you've got to stay up to date on the latest developments in your profession. Right. That's like, in order to practice, you got to have a license. In the world of lawyers, it's you got to pass the bar and you got to be licensed to practice veterinary medicine in your state as well. And one of the requirements for having an active license for the state saying, yeah, you can do this, you can provide veterinary care to, to animals in our state, is you've got to complete a sufficient amount of continuing education every year. The scientific record changes year to year, new studies are done, and we learn, the community generally learns new things, whether it's in the legal domain or in the scientific domain. And by having a requirement that vets have to take a certain amount of continuing education, you ensure that they're kept up to date with the latest developments. Um, and so, as my St. Bernard barks loudly, so, let me see if I can make, I guess, is this an occupational hazard of having a, like a right. podcast? <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah, um, no, it's, um, right. He's just, he thought you were taking him to the vet. That's all. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> I, and I think it's important to note here of the intent of these continuing education courses. Uh, so for example, like the AVMA website, which I have pulled up right now for those watching the video, I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes. 
So it's new techniques, research, and trends emerge constantly. You know, just making sure these vets are on top of everything, basically, for the scientific record. So I think that's just important to note of there is an intent. So we'll kind of walk through like the actual interpretation and the execution of these by these big companies or through sponsorships. Right. And so the take home point is basically the same one that emerges from looking at how veterinary students are taught about nutritional science topics, which is that through direct means and through <laughs> indirect intermediated means, mm -hmm. the big kibble companies play a huge role in yeah. shaping what's taught here. So in you've got the AVMA's website pulled up right now. That's the American Veterinary Medical Association, the most legit veterinary professional uh, organization on the planet. Yeah. And this is their, they offer considering education courses that mm -hmm. you can just get your CE in an online format directly from the AVMA. But when you scroll down to the funding component of it, you can see that both boom Hills, Royal Canaan, along with what amount, what are basically, um, uh, pharmaceutical, like veterinary pharmaceutical companies right. provide the funding for these courses to be created to such a degree that they get called out by name directly yep. on the company's website or on the organization's website. Okay. So that's the equivalent of the Morris Animal Foundation acting on Hill's behalf to fund research that's being done at Tufts University. Right. The other way that you can see the fingerprints of Big Kibble all over the continuing education curricula that's being taught to veterinarians is through direct. They don't even try to intermediate it. It's yep. just direct. You need, you're a vet, you need CE, come directly to the source. Hills, free, uh, I, I, I have been, uh, like I've got, this is an example of some written material that I've received from the pre-COVID era right. at a Hills funded um, CE event where you go, we got free lunches, we got a discussion of purportedly about the latest developments in the scientific community. But I mean, like it couldn't be, this is, I mean, it's just sales material. It's just a rundown of different Hills products and information that makes them special in the eyes of Hills Pet Nutrition. And so, it, you know, this, I, I actually don't see the word free on this. I don't know if this is a paid thing or not. Yeah, registration free, is free. free. Yeah, there you go. Um, yes, and oftentimes, uh, well, I think you attend. Well, you've attended quite a few of these, but the rep is there too, of yeah. hosting or producing, I guess, the the CE course of introducing themselves and then kind of moving into the subject or handing it over to the host. But yeah, I mean, it's. There's no hiding it. I agree. This is probably the most forward of the <laughs> big kibble intervention and bias. Yeah. But it's just, again, it's like, just do the analogy. Mm -hmm. Just think how outraged you'd oh, yeah. be if it was like the McDonald's continuing medical education course. This is all focused on fries and learn about fries. And it's like, it's the same. It's just, that mm -hmm. is normal in this weird little industry. And I also think it's a little ridiculous that the big one that they're calling all our attention to right now, the one that just took place, has special co-hosts, Stacey Santee and a performance by Las Vegas magician, comedian, Piff the Magic Dragon. This doesn't speak particularly highly of the um, rigor and sophistication and seriousness of the program, but far be it for me to tell them how they want to run, <laughs> run their stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I have been to more of these than I care to talk about, but I, I recount the direct experience in the book. And like you said, there right. are two reps from Hills there, both full-time employees. One's a veterinarian. One is a sales rep, no veterinary information whatsoever. They received basically equal billing. Like the rep basically was like, everybody already knew him. His name was Brady. Like everybody that was there at the clinic that I was attending through was like, he like introduced himself like, well, y'all know me already. I'm your friendly neighborhood. Uh, you know, it's me, Brady. And he gave just as much information at the talk as a uh, doctor whose name's in the book. And I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's yeah, kind of like, the, just, it's a healthy skepticism, but just moreover, the absurdity when you look, when you try to fit it into another industry, like think of this, if it was in the medical field, the human medical field. And if 
uh, you know, the Coca-Cola rep was like, hey, guys, are you guys ready to install a vending machine in your, you know, yeah, there office? you go. Exactly. And it's like, That's a good one. Wait, why are you here? Like that would make everyone uncomfortable. But this is just a prominent practice that has been going on for years, <laughs> decades. And like and in order to make it I'll, I'll make it. This is a, everything we've done so far as I sit with my like lap full of textbooks. Right. Right. Now is is like this is how things take place right now or how they've taken place in the past you know correcting for this like if you're a veterinarian and you're listening to this you might well be saying something to the effect of okay well this is all valid but i that's what i've got it's that or nothing and they're kind of right like i said at the beginning of the show the alternative is piecing together the record for yourself at the moment to solve for this over the long term alternative non-biased sources of funding need to be developed. And we probably will be, as we could, but we certainly will be devoting a show towards potential solutions to this and what we can do and what listeners for the show can do to help improve the situation. Because anyone that's whose reaction is, well, it's this or nothing is right. They're right. It's a bad situation, no doubt about it. Like it's not, it, it's just, you can't, uh, right. you can't be satisfied. You can't just go, well, look, I've either got the information Hills is teaching me or I've got mm -hmm. nothing and I'm going to just accept that situation. It's like we have to work to improve the situation because you can't just say, well, I'm going to learn about lung cancer from the tobacco company because nobody else is going to teach me anything about it. That's not an acceptable situation. So Yeah. And I think at one point you had this really good, uh, I was like, I, I think it was from you and you were saying that it was like the more bet smoke camels like that took you know, roughly 50 years to fully unravel. Oh, yeah, no, the, Everybody looked back and it was- Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 like, the Surgeon General's report yeah. on, so that's the top doctor in the country, put out this big monster report that received all this national fanfare in the mid-1950s on, mm -hmm. for the first time, on the links between smoking and lung cancer. Smoking had been, become hugely popular by that point, major thing. Surgeon General of the United States stands up, says, look, we did all this research and we've determined that smoking causes lung cancer. It took three decades from that point for smoking rates in the United States to begin to decline. So like, even if tomorrow morning we could totally change the system through which this like information environment, all the problems we're highlighting here, even then it's gonna take forever for the substantive information to trickle down through the community and eventually reach like the folks that matter and kind of change perspectives on a meaningful scale. So yeah, we've got a lot, it's a lot, it's a good thing that you and I are such young, uh, people <laughs> that we've got a long professional life ahead of us that I just voluntarily shaved my head. I'm not age induced baldness. I right. assure yeah, you. Dan is it's, not 70 years it's, old. Of course not. Of course <laughs> not. I have a long career ahead of me. We'll be fighting the good fight. Yeah. Um, and we will do a future show about actual tangible steps that we're taking to try to improve the, uh, this situation. Cause I think there's stuff that can be done and I think it can move the needle. So I agree. Uh, that tuned. is a great point to end on of yeah. the season of hope is hopefully the season of change is right around the corner and it's just, it has to be gone of this organized movement. So yeah. thank you for listening. First step is admitting there's a problem. Yeah. Right. That's in order to fix anything like this. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, what a, what a great episode. Thank you for listening until next time when we'll be on our, our third episode of more vet smoke camels. We hope you like this series. If you have any suggestions for other topics related to the veterinary community or education or anything related to this topic, uh, feel free to hit us up in the email uh, contact or on our website in the show notes until next time. Thanks, Jen. Bye, everybody.